Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great website that gives you history the way it was intended to be told? With no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. Well, I've got it for you. It's LearnTrueHistory.com. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. Learn history from great professors who don't sugarcoat it for you. This is not for your delicate flowers. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. LearnTrueHistory.com. Com. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 82. Glad to have you back on the program. Sorry I have not been doing my twice-a-week program, but... I should be back to that schedule next week. I've had a lot of things going on, and one of those things that's been going on is I've been finalizing the promotions for my new book, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. So I'm going to want you to go out and pre-order that thing, and you're going to want to go out and pre-order that thing because I've got some really good stuff to give away, and I'm going to have a nice uh, giveaway uh, program uh, where uh, we'll have uh, three winners, for a grand prize, second prize, and third prize if you just go out and pre-order the book, along with the other goodies that I'm going to give you. So you're going to want to go out there and pre-order that. Uh, Ron Paul has written the foreword to the book. So uh, all of you um, who are Ron Paul fans, and I know a lot of people uh, who listen to this podcast are, you're going to want to read that, if nothing else. Of course, you're going to want to read what I wrote, too. But you're going to want to read Ron Paul's foreword. So hopefully I will have those promotions ready to go in about two weeks and then we'll be running them up until the launch date, which is September 18th. That's when the book comes out. So you'll get it on September 18th, but you'll uh, get some stuff before you even get the book, which is going to be great. So be looking for that. I'll put out an email for it. Uh, also, remember to follow me on Twitter, at Brian McClanahan. Like me on Facebook, Brian McClanahan. That's how you find me there. And if you want a free ebook, I'll give you a free ebook already if you just go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's Brian with an O. And you give me an email address and I give you an ebook. I give you a book, Forgotten Founders, and I also give you the audiobook version of that read by yours truly. So there's a lot of goodies out there that I'm going to give you. Uh, you can also uh, follow my YouTube page, which is uh, uh, Brian McClanahan as well. So look me up there, uh, get all those things, snatch up those goodies, and you're going to have more goodies to get just for pre-ordering my book, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. You won't be disappointed. I'm very proud of the product, and I think that it's going to show Hamilton to be the greatest villain in American history, along with the judges who helped him out, which is the second half of the book, John Marshall, Joseph Story, and Hugo Black. So I don't just take down Hamilton. I take down a number of uh, Supreme Court justices as well. Okay. Well, this is a, uh, a user-generated episode, and um, I was asked in an email, hey, Dr. McClanahan, you, um, a lot of people are talking about uh, the Trump administration, all the things they're doing that are wrong, and that the Democrats are going to impeach them, which, by the way, isn't going to happen. Uh, and I, I want to um, know if there's been any other instance in American history besides Nixon where you've had a situation where you've had some kind of corruption in government or you've had foreign influence or anything like that, can you, can you give us a historical, uh, a historical antecedent to this? Well, first of all, let's, let's focus on a couple of things. Now, I've made the statement, and I actually did a podcast on this, uh, 
uh, about impeachment. And um, I've said that virtually every president from Teddy Roosevelt to the present should have been impeached. Now, there's all kinds of reasons why you can impeach presidents. Um, and I've gone over impeachment and what Madison, <clears throat> Madison thought impeachment would be, what the founding generation thought impeachment should be used for. And I think you could have impeached virtually everyone in the last hundred years for uh, violating their oath of office. That's what my entire book, uh, Nine Presidents Who Screw Up America, was all about. In fact, there's 13 in that book, and it's why I did that free class uh, uh, about that. You can go out there and, and get that as well, freehistorycourse.com. But um, when you look at what's going on with Trump right now, and I'm not, gonna, I'm not saying that there can't be something that Trump could be impeached for later on. I mean, obviously, uh, if he doesn't uphold his oath of office, which, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, he's not going to do at times, well, then certainly when you look at this, uh, this definition of impeachment that the founding generation had, um, every president could be impeached for something. But what the Democrats are going after now there's no evidence that there's anything there that you should be impeached for. First, when you talk about foreign influence in government, and this was a very important thing the founding generation worried about. Should a president uh, be uh, watched for having some type of foreign influence? And absolutely. I mean, there's, there's no doubt that uh, the founding generation thought that foreign influence in government was one of the greatest dangers to American security. And so this is why... Uh, they wanted a natural-born citizen to be president of the United States. They didn't want someone who was beholden to some other foreign interest. It's why they were very careful about not having titles granted to uh, to American citizens. Uh, it's why they didn't want uh, the the president to receive gifts or bribes, essentially, from foreign officials or to have any type of uh, you know investments in foreign countries. Uh, they wanted to make sure the president was solely interested in American interests. So foreign influence certainly was viewed as a major problem uh, for, for presidents. But some of the accusations made against the Trump administration now are simply silly. First and foremost, this charge... And a lot of these charges, remember, are unsubstantiated. They don't even know if some of the evidence that they supposedly have even exists. Uh, we think we have it, or we say we have it, but we're not certain we're going to release this information. Well, everyone should be very skeptical of that. The press has shown that one of the reasons why they're doing what they're doing right now is because they lost the election. The Democrats didn't lose the election. The press lost the election. They believed that they had given it to Hillary Clinton and uh, she actually made statements, you know, why am I not up 50 points right now? Because she believed the echo chamber that she exists in, the left exists in this echo chamber where uh, they believe themselves to be the most important and influential people on the planet. And when they're not, and they're not, uh, they run into problems. They, they don't understand why people don't believe what they believe. Um, and this is why they resort to violence and other things. You know, as I've said on this podcast, the left is the most violent entity in the history of Western civilization. All these boogeymen, these false boogeymen, right-wing uh, you know, thugs that are running around out there, they simply don't exist. Now, you could even make a case that all the 
fascists. They're essentially leftists. I mean, they play identity politics. Uh, they're, they're leftists. They're not, they're not conservatives. Conservatives don't riot. Conservatives don't go out and beat people up. Uh, they just don't do those kind of things. Uh, they're, they're more civilized. And same thing with libertarians. Libertarians don't believe in, in any type of uh, aggressive violence whatsoever. So, uh, you know, the left are the ones who are to be feared. But when you look at what Trump has done with the Russians, let's just take the Russians, for example. The accusations have made the Russians influenced the election. Now, first of all, think about that charge. In order for that to be anything that be um, substantial, the Russians would have had to have some type of voter fraud apparatus in place, meaning they would have had to have swung the election for Donald Trump by using voter fraud. Now, there's no evidence that's even existed, and the left has admitted, well, we really don't have any evidence that existed. No, Trump won the election because blue-collar Americans in certain states, particularly in the Rust Belt, voted him in office because they were up, they were tired of American jobs being shipped overseas and all the other things uh, that went along with that. The Democrat, the traditional Democrat base, white working-class Americans did not vote for Democrats this time. That's why Trump won the election. Had nothing to do with Russians out there influencing. Hillary Clinton has come out and said, there were a thousand Russian agents out there. What were they doing? There's no evidence they did anything to influence the election. Even if they had put out propaganda, you should vote for Donald Trump, which they didn't. Uh, so what? The, 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 uh, the United States says this kind of stuff all the time. They actually physically tried to influence an election in Israel, and there's evidence of that during the Obama administration. So, um, you know, what's, what's the big deal? Uh, it, this, isn't even, this isn't even news, really. This is why this is all fake news. Uh, now, as far as Donald Trump giving away classified information in a foreign meeting, what are, the, what are the Russians in the United States supposed to talk about? Now, I know it said, well, they gave away information in Syria, and, uh, you know, and, and uh, these were American interests. Right, so um, the, the question is, uh, what, are, what are these people supposed to talk about in office? I'm, I'm quite certain that American presidents in the, in the 20th century have discussed classified information with foreign, uh, foreign entities. I mean, do you think that Reagan and Gorbachev didn't talk about classified information when they were in meetings together? This is just so silly. Uh, the fact that Trump was discussing, discussing uh, you know, ISIS with the Russians, we have a common enemy there. Uh, the, the Russians are concerned about ISIS, just as Donald Trump is concerned about ISIS. I don't think the Obama administration was as concerned about ISIS, but the, uh, the Trump administration certainly is. So if there's a common enemy, you discuss those things in meetings with foreign officials. How is that? How is that problematic? If the Trump administration was trying to have some type of back-channel communication with the Russians because the, all of the channel, you need, you need to have open dialogue. This is what diplomacy is all about. If we're trying to have a, a foreign policy where we are interested in peace, which, again, the Trump administration has shown that's not the case, but if they're trying to lessen tension with the Russians, isn't that a good thing? Uh, wasn't that what Reagan and Gorbachev were trying to do? Trying to have a peaceful dialogue? That's what diplomacy is. You don't go to war with people, you talk. And so this is, this is where the, the left, the Democrats, are just completely off the rails 
with all these accusations about Trump. They're throwing a hissy fit right now because they lost the election. Uh, Hillary Clinton is on the is is on tour now. Essentially, uh, this is her you know blame uh, blame the Russian tour uh, for her loss. She lost because she was a terrible candidate. She lost because their base didn't the, the core of their base did not turn out for the election. Nobody liked her, and a lot of people who traditionally voted Democrat voted Republican. And if Trump simply follows up on some of his campaign pledges, he's going to win re-election in 2020. Uh, so I think that what's going to happen and what is starting to happen is that the media is so discrediting themselves that uh, people just aren't really going to believe them anymore. And you're, you're seeing it. Now, it's been going on for, for a time, but uh, people are growing tired of these Russian accusations. I think that the left is overplaying their hand. And if I was uh, an advisor to the left, I would say, cut it out. People are going to get tired of it. There's no evidence. We've said ourselves there's no evidence. And so it's about time we drop the whole issue. But I don't really want the left to do that because I think that they're destroying themselves, which is good. All these things that they're doing, all the, the things that they are doing to show their true colors, the violence, the, the rioting, uh, the destruction of private property, which is what's going on uh, in New Orleans and elsewhere, they're showing who they really are, which is a bunch of violent thugs and crybabies. So keep it up. I, I think Americans are growing tired of this nonsense. Uh, but, uh, of course, the leftist media, the media themselves, they're going to show all these things because they support it all. And again, people are just going to start tuning out and turning off the television and going for alternate media, which is the internet, podcasting, things of that nature. But I have to say, you know, one other thing. The Democrats, the left, they're in La La Land. This is why that film La La Land was so popular, because that's their world. La La Land. Uh, I've never seen, I mean, now, you've had instances in American history where, you know, you've had uh, vitriolic, partisan press. It was even worse in the in the 19th century than we see it today. There was no objective press in the 19th century, and that was actually a good thing because uh, you knew who you were reading. If you read this particular newspaper, you knew these people were on the were Democrats or this particular paper, these people were Whigs or uh, National Republicans or whatever the case may be, Federalists. You knew who they were. And, and uh, uh, even, you know, or later on, Republicans and Democrats. You knew from the beginning the slant of the newspaper. Uh, of course, later on, we tried to have, quote-unquote, objective press, but uh, that's silly. You can't have objective news. But the Democrats are in la-la land. Uh, they firmly believe their own echo chambers. They firmly believe that they are the most influential people and that everyone should believe them because they are so smart and brilliant. But... Nobody pays attention to them. Uh, and and that's, a, that's a good thing. People are starting to say, yeah, I, I just don't believe you. Um, I don't believe you, uh, press. I don't believe you, college professor. Whatever the case may be, I don't believe you. But they believe themselves, and this is why when they lose, they can't believe it. Oh, my gosh. We're so smart, and we're so influential, and we're so noble and kind, which is the exact opposite of what they are. Why aren't people voting for us? So that said, that, that part of this question out of the way, 
I want to focus on one particular episode in American history, and this is kind of a preview for my How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. This is one of the chapters. I'm going to give you a very little snippet, and I'm not going to read it, but I'm going to give you, uh, you know, an enticement, a little carrot for going to buy the book, because this is the kind of stuff that's going to be in it. Uh, so I was asked, where can you find foreign influence in government? Essentially, that, that, that was the question. Where can we find, besides Richard Nixon, you know, Nixon is the often, often used as the case of the great um, evil guy in the executive office, the guy that was really abusing executive power. And there's no doubt about it. Nixon was not a, a good president. He was one of the nine presidents in my book who screwed up America. So th that said, I mean, Nixon is often the example. Uh, the other thing that, by, by, by the way, the other thing Hillary Clinton said recently in a speech is that uh, she said this in a speech that uh, we had a president that uh, you know was obstructing justice and he was impeached. Hmm. Richard Nixon wasn't impeached. Now Hillary Clinton makes up history as she goes in that particular case. Nixon was never impeached. He resigned. He wasn't impeached. But that said, there was an episode in American history where you had substantial foreign influence in government that could have potentially directed the United States into a different position than what the president wanted and the secretary of state wanted, and no one knew what was going on. And that particular incidence, incident is goes all the way back to the first administration in American history, the Washington administration. Alexander Hamilton was uh, doing something that bordered on treason, and he started right as the government began operation. Let me, let me set up what's happening here. Hamilton was the first cabinet member appointed. When the first Congress was discussing uh, the executive cabinet, they decided that Treasury Secretary was the most important because the organizing the finances of the United States was something that uh, needed to be done and so um, that was the first cabinet position created. Now, right on the heels of that was, uh, was Secretary of State and, and Secretary of War. But uh, Hamilton was actually appointed uh, Secretary of Treasury uh, in September of 1789. And right as he, as he took office, uh, he um, began not just looking at the finances of the United States, but also foreign policy. Now, Thomas Jefferson had not arrived back from Paris yet. So Hamilton saw himself as the de facto prime minister of the United States. That's how he always viewed his role. This is why Hamilton was acting as not only Secretary of Treasury, but also Secretary of State and Secretary of War at times in the Washington administration, even though you had Thomas Jefferson and you had Henry Knox. Uh, Hamilton thought this was his job, and that's because Hamilton was Washington's closest advisor. There was no doubt about it. When you look at the relationship between Washington and Hamilton, that was really the relationship that uh, led to all kinds of problems for the Washington administration. And I did discuss the Washington administration in Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America. And it was Hamilton who was behind all of the terrible things that Washington did. The, the instances where he, he went off the rails and, and violated his oath of office. That was Hamilton. This is, you know, Lord of the Rings kind of stuff where you have, uh, you know, the 
the evil advisor whispering in the ear of the king under a curse. This is what you have here with Hamilton and Washington. So Hamilton is married into the Schuyler family, which uh, is one of the most powerful and influential families in New York, going all the way back to the patroonship period in, uh, in New York history. And, uh, you know, Hamilton never thought that New York was his home. He always thought that the United States was his home. I mean, he, he's an immigrant. Uh, he, did, he did come from Nevis. Um, and uh, so he never viewed uh, any particular state as his home, as you know, Washington and Jefferson did. I mean, Virginia was their home. Uh, and, you know, Jefferson called Virginia his country. So Hamilton was this different kind of a nationalist. So, and Hamilton, of course, was pro-British. He loved the British Constitution. He loved it for its corruption. He thought the British, you know, all he simply thought was that the United States needed independence, but we still needed to follow the British model in so many ways. He made a very famous speech in June 1787 during the Philadelphia Convention, where he advocated an elected monarchy and senators for life and all these very aristocratic positions. And I get into all that in the book. But right as he takes office, he has conversations with a British diplomat named Gordon Beckwith. And this particular episode is not really discussed in any of the laudatory Hamilton biographies. In fact, Ron Chernow whose Hamilton biography has become all the rage because it was the basis of the Hamilton musical by Manuel Lynn Miranda, focuses on the Beckwith meeting in two pages. And his conclusion was that, quote, far from being a pro-British lackey, much less a high-level spy, Hamilton stubbornly defended U.S. interests at every turn. He was bargaining with Beckwith, not groveling. So, uh, Hamilton was, uh, to Chernow, doing what was in best in, the best interest of the United States. Now, that's interesting, because the official American foreign policy at this point was, eventually, neutrality. But Hamilton was insisting on a commercial relationship with the British. In fact, Beckwith, which Chernow doesn't mention gave him an agent number. He became agent number seven. And Hamilton withheld these conversations from the Washington administration. Eventually, he hinted that he had discussed some things with somebody, but this deviated from official American foreign policy. And after things got heated between the British and the United States and the French and the United States during the French Revolution, Hamilton was still meeting with Beckwith and insisting that the United States wanted a commercial treaty with the British, whereas they didn't at all. The official American foreign policy was neutrality. Washington wanted neutrality. Jefferson wanted neutrality, but not Hamilton. And Hamilton was trying to drive American foreign policy in a different direction. That is bordering on treason. So here you have the Secretary of Treasury, not the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Treasury meeting with a British official discussing foreign policy and almost making promises. In fact, at one point in these meetings, you know, Hamilton said, well, the real block in all of this is going to be James Madison. Uh, you know, he's, uh, but Madison, uh, he's a good guy, but he just doesn't know anything. Hamilton also 
uh, you know, he, he said we're going to have a, a minister. And Hamilton wanted Governor Morris to be the minister to, uh, to England, knowing full well that Morris would be able to do nothing there. And in fact, then later Morris was sent over to France. But uh, Hamilton wanted Morris to be the fall guy when things didn't work out, um, which is interesting. You know, so I get into all this detail in how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America when, we, when I look at this, the chapter entitled The, Pro, the, uh, the Proclamation. Uh, because Hamilton's influence in foreign policy is often ignored. Even Chernow says, how Hamilton had time to discuss foreign policy is unknown because he was worried. Yeah, because Hamilton thought he was the de facto prime minister. That's the point. Hamilton was doing things that he shouldn't have been doing. He was putting his fingers into every aspect of American government. So this meeting with Beckwith, far from being just an innocent pursual of American interests, and, and uh, Chernow goes out of his way to defend Hamilton. What for? Hamilton shouldn't have even had the meeting to begin with. He wasn't Secretary of State. And uh, uh, obviously, I mean, you, you could say, well, I mean, this is discussing commercial relationships. That's what the Secretary of Treasury should do. No, that's what the Secretary of State should do. That's what George Washington should do as president, but not the Secretary of Treasury. So this particular episode, when you look at foreign influence in government, it goes all the way back to the first administration. You could honestly say that this was foreign influence in government. In some way, Hamilton's views on Britain were influencing what he thought the American government should be like. Now, of course, the government hadn't been settled how we were going to do things. But one of the things that's interesting about this first Congress, when they were looking at the powers of these cabinet members, these secretaries, there was a proposal early on made to where the, the cabinet members themselves would go down to the, to the Congress and get into the halls of Congress and start making proposals. Well, that was rejected because it was thought as being uh, dangerous. You would have too much influence from the executive branch in the halls of Congress. So simply they could issue reports they could write something up, the Congress could read it, and they could say, yeah, forget it, we're not doing that. So people worried about Hamilton wading down into the halls of Congress and being a prime minister. They didn't want the British system where the executive was planted right in the legislative branch. That was seen as very, very dangerous. The president, of course, could make recommendations. His secretaries eventually could make recommendations. But that was not, that was as far as it went. Congress wanted to be able to negotiate itself. They wanted to be able to decide what policy initiatives when it came to taxing and spending and all those things, even foreign policy when it came to treaties, you know, peace and war, these type of things. The Congress wanted to be able to deal with those issues themselves free from executive influence. It didn't mean the president over time wouldn't have influence because they did. But even in the first Congress, you can see that there's some influence. But they wanted it to be as separate as, as possible. So when you look at this episode, the Beckwith Agent Number 7, I mean, Hamilton was, was assigned, and, and uh, you know, I, I guess Chernow doesn't think that's very important. Hamilton was assigned a number, Agent Number 7, because the conversations would continue even after the Washington administration had made it clear their policy was neutrality. Now, you can discuss whether 
the president had the authority to issue a proclamation of neutrality. In fact, that's the crux of the chapter that I give you, the, the constitutional issue involved there. Can the president, by decree, issue a neutrality proclamation? That's really where I get into uh, the issue of the Constitution and George Washington at that point. And Hamilton was even involved in that. By that point, Hamilton had sided with neutrality because the opposite choice would have been war with the British because the United States had our perpetual treaty of friendship with the French. And so if we didn't issue a neutrality proclamation, if we didn't go neutral, we were going to have to go to war with the British. And Hamilton didn't want that. He wants to steer the United States into a commercial relationship, a most favored nation status with the, with the British. And the clear evidence of that is when John Jay goes over to Great Britain in 1794 and comes back with Jay's Treaty, which was panned by the opposition. It was ratified by the U.S. Congress. But, I mean, John Jay was burned in effigy for, for getting this thing because it made us a strong ally with the British. And there was a large faction of the United States that did not like that. They weren't comfortable with that. So this, in fact, um, there's been a theory that the first party system was, in fact, created by foreign policy, not by domestic policy. It was this wrangling over who was going to be our most trusted ally, the British or the French, that led to the formation of uh, political parties in America, uh, not the wrangling over things like the First Bank of the United States or uh, Hamilton's report on public credit, these type of things, that it was actually foreign policy. And I, I mean, I think that you can make a case for that. Uh, you, you had situations where, of course, foreign policy was very important. Um, even, you know, things like the Whiskey Rebellion had a hint of foreign policy to it because the people like Hamilton were worried about Jacobins running around the countryside lopping off the heads of Federalists. And so this was heavily influenced by foreign policy. So uh, without a doubt, Hamilton secretly, because Washington didn't know he was doing this, neither did Jefferson, was trying to maneuver the United States into a most favored nation status with the British and that bordered on treason. So when you look at foreign influence in government, here you have it. Alexander Hamilton, the great hero, of course, nowadays, uh, which is unjustified, uh, the great hero of the founding generation is actually trying to undermine the Washington administration and their preferred policy of neutrality in the period uh, which was very tense uh, when you had Citizen Genet and you had all these things going on. This is a very tense period. Uh, but it started in 1789, uh, and so uh, this was uh, by far uh, a, a, a nice example of uh, undue foreign influence in government. So I hope that answered uh, the, the listener's question. Uh, could you give us another example? Absolutely. Alexander Hamilton. So we should just blame Hamilton, blame Hamilton. So, you know, we should do that. Uh, and... Um, of course, also discussing Trump and what's going on there and how that's, there's nothing to that, uh, at least from, from my estimation. There could something come out, but at this point, uh, I think that uh, Trump is uh, free from any type of uh, foreign influence that led to his election as president of the United States. So uh, that said, I'll see you hopefully back on my twice-a-week schedule next week. Uh, until that time, uh, have a good one.